Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Y'all will appreciate that. I always have this fear. Can everybody hear me all right? I didn't hear the rebound of the mic, so that's good. I always have this fear that the mic is going to be turned on while I'm singing, and so I'm going to inadvertently help lead the congregation in worship. You know, they're going to be like, what's that screaming cat sound? And everybody's going to look around and like, oh, the mic's still on. You all have the, the thrones. There's no one that really sits on them. I, I've been to churches before where they'll be like, here, you're the preacher. You'll sit on one of the thrones back there. And it's always kind of awkward. Like if you're not help leading worship or really doing anything, it's kind of like you're just sitting there watching everybody just look at you. And it's like, I don't really know what to do. Let's pray before we get started in the word. Jesus, we're here for you. We thank you for everything that you do for us. In the midst of the song being played, Be Thou My Vision, in the midst of communion, that's what we pray for now, Father. We pray that you are our vision, that there can be so many distractions in the world, there can be so many things that are calling out our attention, our worship, our devotion, our time, our commitment, but the thing that is really worthy of it all, the object of our true worship is our audience of one, is you, Lord God Almighty. Riches we don't want, empty men's praise we are not after, but we are after the King of glory. And we pray that as the pronouncement of blessing was given upon Peter, that blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Father, we pray that you reveal yourself again through your word in a fresh way in which we have never seen you before. We pray that you touch our hearts and touch our lives. Be with us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to be looking at Luke's account of the triumphal entry. And that is found in Luke chapter 19. Waters a little, it make me feel like a giant. In Luke chapter 19, we record, we have uh, Luke's recording of the triumphal entry, starting in verse, uh, we'll start in 28. Talking about Jesus, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew new to Bethage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you. When entering, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. That's probably not going to work with most of us. We can't just go on a car lot and say, The Lord has need of this Corvette. (laughs) It'll work with them. It'd be nice. Yeah, that would be. So those who were sent away... 
So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. So they found the colt, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So this is something that is customary for a king, that his disciples go out, find this colt, which no one has ever set upon. And the Old Testament had prescribed that you could only use animals for this specific purpose if they had never been used for ordinary purposes. So this couldn't just be a regular cult that is out doing whatever a, a regular farm work or, or even any of anyone's even ever sat on it before. So this cult has a special purpose. And its purpose now has been given that the Lord of glory is going to ride on it into Jerusalem. Now, in John's account, John notes that previously... No one was allowed, if anyone ever saw Jesus, because Jesus was in pretty big trouble with the religious authorities at that time. If anyone knew of Jesus or knew where Jesus was, uh, of his whereabouts, they were to be handed over to the official authorities. Because if you read the Gospels, you see that he's kind of stirred up a few times, a few things that's going on. And and he kind of rubbed shoulders with the religious authorities and they didn't like some of the stuff that he was doing. Which if you read it, it's really kind of unbelievable because they get upset. For one instance, they get upset of Jesus going to the synagogue and there's a man that is gravely ill and Jesus heals him. And the, and the, the Pharisees are like really mad about it. Man, they just made that guy's life better. That's horrible. You know, we got to kill him. And they get upset because it so happens to be on the wrong day. It's on the Sabbath day. And they taught that you should do no work on the Sabbath day. None whatsoever. So much so... That in the his, historical studies of reading what this event was about, they had made a law that all your chairs, or uh, if you had any chairs or any type of thing, they were to be preset already because if you scrape your chair against the floor, that's considered plowing the ground. And so that's considered work. So everything is pre done before the Sabbath. So if you have anything to do, you better make sure that you get it done on the Sabbath and you can't do anything. It was actually so much work just trying to find out how much work you couldn't do that it was almost miserable. And that's what these people were under, a heavy burden. And so Jesus came and he said, I'll show you what, I'm going to heal this man. I'm going to heal him on the Sabbath day. And they got really upset about that. And time and time again, Jesus did such things. And so they wanted him murdered. So much so that they put out almost kind of a, a warrant that if anybody found him or knew his whereabouts, they were to tell the religious authorities. Now, this is pretty bold for Jesus knowing that context. Right? If you have kind of a religious warrant out for your arrest, people would tell you maybe not necessarily the wisest thing to do is to go riding like a king into the entrance of the whole area. I mean, you're telling everybody, I'm the king and I'm coming through. David did something like this. And in the, in the line of David, this is very similar to that event. And so Jesus is being very bold. And at this point, his disciples know that Jesus doesn't have very much longer. But as he's entering, the people are laying down their cloaks. The people are laying down their palm branches. Although it kind of feels more like Christmas now with the weather. I was going to say Happy Palm Sunday, but it almost feels like saying Merry Christmas this morning. As he went... As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God 
with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, something that you'll commonly hear is that the same people that were praising Jesus on this day will be yelling, crucify him on the day of crucifixion on Good Friday. I think that's just a myth because we really don't see that. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like one of those cool church things to say just because it kind of links together and it kind of makes a good sermon or whatever. But we don't really read that. None of the authors of any of the Gospels mention it. Nobody says that. So it's kind of just rumor. It's kind of just tradition. It's almost kind of like the telephone game. You know, whenever my wife and I are, well, mainly my wife does children's church and I just kind of sit in the corner and make sure the kids don't kill each other. But whenever we're doing children's church... And on one event, we, we did the telephone game, and you know, it was about five or six kids that it uh, starts with, and it starts with one kid, and you say something, and by the time, it doesn't, you don't need a big group, but by the time it gets to the end, it makes no sense whatsoever. And sometimes it can even get caught up in just between the last two people. It makes nonsense. And sometimes in, in church, we can kind of do that as well. We can kind of say something and then say it to the next person, next, even all, all the way down to generations. And we're kind of like, well, I think this is true just because I heard it. But yet you read the Bible and you find out that it's really not true. It's just simple tradition. It's just simply something that we've heard. And so with this instance, I think these people that are shouting Hosanna in the name of the Lord are true disciples. They're true followers of Christ. Now, there's a comparison and contrast that's coming up. Because while they're shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, why do you think they were saying something like that? One, probably out of jealousy. Right? We all have a tendency in some form or fashion to get jealous. And we know that the Pharisees have got jealous because they were taking some, he was siphoning some of their followers unto him. And really, Jesus is more exciting than the Pharisees. The Pharisees had nothing to offer but more laws, more rules, more things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Basically, they would sit down and come up with all the more rules, that, things you couldn't do. I mean, it got so ridiculous that you couldn't gargle. That was considered work. The Pharisees were ridiculous in their laws. Jesus offered freedom. Jesus offered healing. Jesus offered forgiveness. And so naturally, people were going to be drawn to that. And in the droves, they were. Now, some did fall away, and some were kind of like, well, this, Jesus is teaching some hard stuff. I'm going to kind of go back to the easy way, I guess. But Jesus offered freedom. Something that the Pharisees never could have offered. And so when it came time, and they know that Jesus' time is probably coming to a close, but to get in kind of one of those last few jabs, they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're being loud. They're being obnoxious. They are using their outside voice. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, in the New Testament, the New Testament is originally written in Greek. And in the Greek language, we kind of read over it. When, when it's translated to English, we read over that term wept. And we kind of, it's kind of some, hard for some of us to picture Jesus actually weeping. But we get this connotation of Jesus having a, a, a tear roll down his cheek and then he kind of wipes it off. It's like, 
and kind of goes on, you know. In the Greek, it's Jesus is broken. You ever seen a, a full-grown man just break down in tears? That's what Jesus is experiencing right now. In the Greek, his stomach is churning. Outwardly, he is broken. If, if you don't handle emotions well, the disciples maybe, they don't seem to help handle emotions so well, so they're probably kind of standing awkwardly like, you okay over there? But Jesus is weeping over the city as he sees it. And he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This prophetic word of Jesus came true in A.D. 70. Israel right now is under the Roman Empire. And Rome allows them some religious freedom. Rome allows them, I mean, it's not like they're in shackles. It's not like they're back in Egypt. But Rome allows them an okay amount of freedom. But if they overstep that so much so where it becomes political, that's where things start getting hairy. And that's what it turned into in AD 70. Rome felt like the Jews had exercised way too much freedom. And so Rome smashed them. They came in with all their guards, all their heavy military equipment, and they leveled them to the ground. They destroyed the temple. So much, what, literally what Jesus said, because you know, as a Jewish rabbi, you can kind of picture that what Jesus says sometimes is hyperbole, so he's just using exaggeration to make a point across. But this literally happened, that there was not one stone upon another of the temple. The heat that came by from the military was so fierce that it made everything crumble. There was nothing left. It caused the death of someone estimated... 600,000 Jews, 600,000 Jews had been wiped out by Rome. And Jesus says it was because they did not recognize his coming. Historian, Jewish historian Josephus tried to say that it was because of one issue or another, not getting to the religious issues. But Jesus said the reason why great destruction was coming upon them is because they had rejected their Messiah. Professor Daryl Bach, commentator, writes that national sin will pay its price in judgment on covenant unfaithfulness. How well do we handle blessing? Because if you study the Old Testament, you can see that Israel did not handle blessing too well. When God led them into the promised land, they were blessed and everything seemed to be going good. And what would they do? They would go to other idols. God would bring about captors. They were either destroyed in their own area or taken off to another area. And they regretted it, didn't they? They cried out to God. But the amazing thing is God responded. It may not have been always in the same season that they wanted it, but God responded. He picked them up like petulant children. And he carried them on their way. And sometimes it can be fun to kind of look at Old Testament, you know, in, in the disciples and look at how in the Old Testament people can be so foolish, but aren't we the same sometimes? Don't we also sometimes fall into the same trap of that cycle of where everything is going good? It can sometimes be easy for us to fall into the trap of just to forget God. 
just to forget the Lord, to forget all the things that he's done for us. Or maybe we're the opposite, maybe in times of, of hurt and pain and suffering, it can be kind of easy to forget about him. Because we can shake our fist at God and be like, well, where are you? Why didn't you help me in this? The amazing thing is that God doesn't wipe us out. I tell you what, if I was God, the first instance that someone rebelled against me, right then and there, just smash him with my finger. But God is patient. The scripture said that he's long-suffering. In the Hebrew, since the, in the original language of the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew is a very concrete language. It's very image-driven. So you use the image to describe a, a word. And so that word long-suffering really means long of nose. You ever know someone who, when they get really angry, their nostrils flare up? That's the imagery that's going on. You get really angry and your nostrils just start to flare up. And the Bible says that the Lord is slow to anger. He's slow to wrath. He's long-suffering. He's long of nose. He's patient. He's kind. Now, I guess for the practical application for us is where do we find ourselves in the group? Because you have two groups in comparison and contrast. You have the group that is praising Jesus with everything that they are, laying down their cloaks, which this isn't something small. You know, this isn't something where they can go to goodwill. And get like 12 of them and be like, hey, I'm going to take 11 of these and give them to Jesus and I'm going to keep a really good one for myself. This is probably all they had. This isn't the super elite of the community. And this is pretty precious to them. You just don't take your one good cloak and throw it on the floor, on the ground, and have a donkey step over it. And people trampling all over it. It's costly. It costs them something. Palm branches, a sign of kingly authority, a, a sign of adoration to the king. And they knew that the Pharisees didn't like Jesus. They knew that the Pharisees didn't like what Jesus was all about. And so there was also some risk probably involved. Because while Rome allowed them some freedoms, one thing that Rome allowed them was, if they committed blasphemy, they could stone someone. And sometimes the Pharisees liked to do that. And so they had a risk even involved within their lives, but they didn't care. They were willing to take the risk. They were willing to make the sacrifice. Do we find ourselves in that group that's willing to be opposite of culture? That's willing to take risks within our jobs, within our vocations? Maybe even sometimes within our own family, within our friends, within our groups. Because sometimes it can be easy to go the way of the tide. It can be easy to go the way that the rest of the world is going. And it can be much harder to go in the opposite direction. Instead of always talking to the negative, instead of always going with everything of, of, of immorality and sensuality, of going in the opposite direction, it can be hard to do that. And the Bible calls us to do that. Because Jesus did not fit in very well with his area. Can you imagine the most loving, amazing person who goes around healing people? Even lepers, which there was no condition, there was nothing medically that could actually heal those people. You could kind of put bandages over it, so to speak. You could try to help, but it's not really going to help the main core issue. 
And Jesus goes around and doing that, and they want to kill him. That's hard for me to fathom in my mind. But they, he did not fit into their box that they wanted him to be. Do we find ourselves in that group, or do we find ourselves in the other group that's going with the way of the tide? They're shouting out, Jesus, get your disciples to quiet down. Tell them to silence themselves. And Jesus rebukes them. Now, an interesting note is, sometimes whenever we read that verse where he says, I tell you, if these stay silent, the very stones will cry out. We say, well, if, if, if those people were silent, then inanimate objects would begin to praise God. That could be one way to interpret it. But given the context, let me propose another way to interpret it. In a minor prophet book, Habakkuk, which is a very fun word to say, Habakkuk, especially in Hebrew, it says in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, that the people had built their houses not upon the Lord, but upon iniquity. And it says that the, house, the stones of the walls are crying out judgment against you. The beams of the walls are crying out against you. I think Jesus, knowing very well the Old Testament, was saying, if these people were to be quiet, judgment is going to be pronounced upon you. Judgment is going to be pronounced upon the Pharisees. And it was. Where do we find ourselves in following Christ? Are we more in the line of David? Remember when David had the the tabernacle being brought back into the city and he rejoices and he's excited and he's dancing? And Michael, his wife at the time, looks out the window and she sees him and the text says that she despised him in her heart despised her own husband hated him at the core of her being because she's like he's the king what's he doing people were never going to respect him after this but he was so excited that god's holy temple or or the tabernacle was being brought back into the, the the ark of the covenant was being brought back in that meant that god's presence was back into the area and he rejoiced greatly Do we find ourselves being David or do we find ourselves being Michael? Are we willing to abandon ourselves for Christ? Because the call that Jesus has on our lives can be a very costly one. People may not think we're cool and as much as sometimes as churches may want to try and be cool, we may not be that way for the world. I'm not saying we should be weird on purpose. We should go around walking around in sackcloth and ashes and just, hey, look at me, I'm different. But some of our opinions from the scriptures will not always be popular with the world. But there's a greater reward. That the Lord is our vision. That there's a great inheritance. That we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That we get to enjoy. Jesus said that eternal life begins now. Eternal life is knowing you. Knowing the Lord. Are we willing to lay down our cloaks and our hearts and be humble before the king? A good Jew would get up in the morning and before he goes to bed at evening and pronounce the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6. It begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our Lord, the Lord is one. 
A good Jew would get, would get up every morning and pronounce that, and before he goes to bed, say that over himself and over his family, over his household, for generations to come. It was said by the Jewish rabbis that there was only one instance, about one instance, I think later they created a second, but there was about one instance at which you had right, you had license to not be able to say the Shema. And that was if your father had passed. Later on, it was probably the addition that your rabbi had passed. But if your father had passed at that time, you were allowed morally that you could, if you wanted to choose so, not say the Shema in the morning and the evening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our Lord, the Lord God is one. Now there's a man that comes up to Jesus, and when he's getting popularity, when he's getting disciples, and he says, Lord, my father has passed, let me go bury my father. But what does Jesus tell him? It's kind of shocking. He says, no. Let the dead bury their own dead. It's kind of, it seems a little harsh to us. We're kind of like, well, Jesus, let him just do that. He'll come back and follow you later. What's wrong with that? And he tells them that no one putting their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Because if you're putting your hand to the plow and you're trying to go forward, which I hope you're trying to do, you're never going to get any progress with the plow and just standing the same way and going forward, but you're looking back, it's not going to be that straight, is it? There's not going to be much progress. He says, if you want to be with me in the kingdom and looking forward, which I hope you are, you cannot constantly be looking back. Because he peered into the man's soul and he knew that if that man were to go back and be with his family in the midst of the funeral, which Jewish funerals at that time were very long, and you go in the midst of the funeral, he probably would not come back. He would get his favorite blanket. He would get out his hot chocolate. He would, oh, there's Jesus. He would look out through the window. I'll join him one day. Jesus knew that if he went back home, he would not come back. Jesus called that man to a life of birds in the air not having nests and foxes not having holes. Which, in comparison, he says that they do. The birds of the air have their nests and the foxes have their holes. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said it was costly. For us, it can be costly. And who knows down on the road in generations of what this cost may be. We have a pretty decent amount of freedom right now in this country, but who knows how long that will last. And we'll have to hide and greatly be persecuted like our brothers and sisters in other countries. And that it will be a great test for us or our children's, or our children's children's. But in what stand do we take? And I hope that we take Jesus' life. I hope we follow that life. Because it is a very rewarding life. It may be costly, but it is the best life you could ever live. Doesn't mean you're going to get a mansion here and now, but Jesus promises that he has great dwellings for us in the new Jerusalem. In the midst of God in the midst of his people, in the midst of true peace. In this life, true peace can be hard to find. There always, is, there always is an element of some form of anxiety in our lives right now. Imagine that. A life forever lasting that has no ounce of anxiety and doesn't even know what it's like. 
You have the mist of, of being able to turn, I don't know if there's going to be news in heaven, but of turning on the news and there's no negativity. There's nothing going on that is in the negative. Everything is good. I think it's going to take us a hundred years just to try and get used to that mentality. Turning on the news and not hearing of drugs, not, of not hearing of death, of not hearing of destruction. But that is our reward. That is our kingdom. In which we get to enjoy as priests and as kings and as queens. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good to us. You call us to great things. We get to be a part of your kingdom. We pray that we answer that call. We pray that we're faithful. We pray that we continue on into the end. It's the one who finishes that receives the reward. It's the one who finishes the race who gets a prize. The one who gets a good start but doesn't finish well. Who throws in the towel and gives up. There's no reward for that person. But there's a great reward in finishing unto the end. We may be battled, we may be battered, we may be bruised, but we have victory. We fight from victory that you have given us. Help us to, that truth to be seared within our hearts. And help us not to be defeated by the world, for he who is greater in us is greater than the world. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.